This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hi everyone, this is the Not Quite Daily Show Summer 2017 Season, Episode 10, talking about Made in Abyss, Episode 10. A brief note before beginning, uh, it has been many months of real time since I made the video for the ninth episode, so if you are watching through these for the first time, you will probably notice some changes. Some are for workflow reasons, and some are for quality reasons. Hopefully the product will be better, and not merely different. Getting back into the swing of things to complete the series meant that I had to go back and rewatch Made in Abyss, and that was awesome. It also meant I had to watch all my old videos and take notes, and that was less awesome. I'm sorry for anyone used to my more recent content who has tried to suffer through my earlier shows. We will try to make up for that in these final four analyses. So then, the tenth episode. Okay, you got me. I was critical of the survival training episode because it seemed like a relaxation of tension. It struck me that its main purpose was to make it more believable to us that this pair of kids could survive in this environment that claims professional lives on the regular. I was bummed that the oppressive danger of the abyss had been undermined only to get to this episode and realize that it was a setup. Things were going too well, and it was on purpose. When they suddenly don't go so well, the threat is all the sharper for the contrast. From the moment things go south in this episode, all the way through the end is absolutely stressful, and I found myself peering through my fingers during the body horror segments. That's not hyperbole. I really watched Reg's attempt to tend Rico just like this. Before we get into the normal categories of analysis then, I just want to examine the scenes of Rico's injury and why it worked so well. The main reason is that it defies our expectations, and in order to do that, the writers have to have a good idea of what those expectations are. This is why tropes are not bad, even if people usually use that word in a negative way. A trope is just a type of storytelling pattern that has shown up enough times for audiences to recognize it and therefore will have some expectation of how it plays out. Sometimes this is just storytelling shorthand, such as using an archetypal characterization like Mad Scientist so that an audience will quickly gain a rough idea of a character. Sometimes, though, a trope will be employed to surprise an audience by setting up a pattern they recognize and then deviating from the expected outcome. Thus, a good storyteller does not ignore tropes or avoid tropes, but masters them. In doing so, they master an understanding of audience expectations. So what Made in Abyss has done is create a kind of mini-trope. They set up a pattern for us around Reg and Rico's interactions with the creatures of the Abyss and chose this moment to turn it on its head. During the interaction with the Silk Fang in Episode 4, they became aware of the threat of the creature, Reg takes some initial action defensively, and then Rico explains some creature lore to him and they use this lore to overcome. Likewise with the hippo thing during the survival training, where Reg pulls her out of harm's way, and later Rico uses her creature lore to come up with a plan to fight back. If this pattern doesn't work, or there is no time, then they break out the relics. 
This time, the pattern begins the same, with the momentary threat of the orb piercer being avoided thanks to Reg, and Rico supplying information for an ad hoc way to fight back by scaring it with the umbrella. It attacks, but doesn't get scared off, and yet we aren't concerned. There's even a bit of levity to the scene, as the umbrella is way smaller than we're imagining based on Rico's suggestion. So, obviously, the next step is to break out Incinerator or the Blaze Reap as the other way to deal with creatures. Reg is even turning around to suggest this, and then the pattern has changed. They do several things to ensure we realize the seriousness of the moment. All of the music drops out with the actual strike. There is no cry of pain, no dramatic shouting or freaking out. Instead, they both are stunned. Their eyes widen or go flat. This is the reaction of someone going into shock, or an extreme flight or fight response, where the surge of adrenaline blanks everything else out. The sound of a rising and increasing heartbeat is the only sound besides their voices. The other trick is that the fatal wound isn't something that happens after the threat is over. Like, the beast isn't defeated or avoided, and only then do we discover that Rico has been stabbed. No, they have to deal with the injury and the clock it puts them on while the thing continues to attack and stalk them. Her poisoning takes Incinerator completely out of the mix, too. She'll die if he's unable to help her for two hours, regardless of whether they defeat the Orbed Piercer. He might normally have struck first with Incinerator, to not hesitate, as Ozen suggested, except that he did just that last episode, and Rico's recklessness in his absence was nearly their undoing. Even the shape of the landscape increases the threat. These giant goblets are like tiny arenas. They can't get far away from the Orb Piercer, nor is there anything to hide behind or use defensively. Their shape and distance from one another mean that Reg can't just jump off the edge or reach for a nearby platform. What looks like just an interesting way to render the landscape becomes part of what forces them to make the decision to go upwards. Now we'll talk more about the Curse of the Abyss when we get to world building. I just want to add how their treatment of Rico's injury further escalates the tension and the threat the audience feels. This is actually a good example of managing tone. Someone's hand swelling up to abnormal size, like an inflated surgical glove, could be done for laughs in another situation, like when one of the Looney Tunes smashes their hand with a hammer. In this show, though, where the threat is very real and no one's body ever distorts strangely, it becomes horrifying instead of hilarious. Correctly managing your tone is critical for exactly this reason. These moments don't have the same impact if we first assume that this is played for laughs. Everything about that scene, with the bleeding and the swelling, and then the awful breaking of her arm, become visceral to the audience because it's such a departure from what we've seen happen to characters so far. Even during Ozen's rampage, where she knocks out both of them, there is nowhere near this level of threat or feeling of helplessness because there is no distortion or bleeding or sounds of bones breaking. They set up patterns for us and then defied them, and we can't miss how serious the situation is because of this. I was worried they had taken away the sense of threat. Well, I'd say it's back. The Abyss is once again a terrifying and deadly place in which to venture. Success is suddenly so very far away. So in goals, and in conflicts too, very little actually happens. The tone shift and all the elements necessary for it take up the bulk of the episode. There's nothing wrong with that, but it gives us just one thing in each category to discuss. 
Reg's goal and duty of protecting Rico suffers its biggest blow by far. This could conceivably be enough to make him give up on being successful in this pursuit. Certainly, he should have almost no confidence about this goal after this low point. In another story setting, his next action would be to convince Rico to give up her pursuit of the Netherworld's bottom and her mother. He may suggest just that, as it will seem to him as the only realistic way to meet this goal of his. But the Curse of the Abyss will still force them downward. They can stay put, or they can descend, but going back is potentially impossible, especially if she is permanently disabled or so weakened that she can't entertain the idea of suffering more effects of the curse. Now, I would expect that some soul-searching will be necessary for Reg, certainly, but really for the two of them. Looking back, it's hard to say what they could have done differently. Can they realistically walk around armed all the time, just in case they get ambushed again? I mean, just navigating the Abyss's terrain seems to demand a lot of them. For Reg to have a chance of succeeding at this goal, something is going to have to change for them. Tactics, knowledge, equipment, company, or assistance, something will need to be different or this goal becomes increasingly unlikely and therefore all other goals as well. In conflicts, rather than advancing any of the existing things to worry about, we got a new conflict as the Abyss reminds us why its secrets tend to stay buried. Nanachi's line about Rico's hand should already set us up to believe that something about this ordeal will be permanent. This new conflict then is about Rico's physical condition, both the part where she is at death's door and the part where she might not be the same afterwards even if her life is spared. Who knows what kind of new demands or limitations might be enforced upon them. Nanachi might very well aid them in saving Rico, but is it charity? Is it possible something must be given or some new task laid at their feet as a result? It could even be out of gratitude. It doesn't have to be like a fee that she demands of them or anything. Whatever it is, the timing and severity of Rico's injury are almost certainly going to change the direction of the story, perhaps permanently. So then in our characterizations, hey, the bunny girl finally showed up. Though she admittedly is more like a bunny kangaroo goat thing with some creepy hands, but whatever. I will get to her in a second. First off, let's talk about our main duo. Starting with Rico, as I mentioned in the opening bits about the injury scenes, Rico was proceeding like normal through the first part of this episode, even confidently feeding Reg creature lore during a moment of peril. It's not that she is flippant about the seriousness of the situation. In fact, she is just as on guard as Reg when he reveals that he hears someone moving around that seems to be aware of them. Rather, it's just that it's hard to keep Rico down. She still has not had any existential crisis about her status as a reanimated corpse. Her misadventures last episode have not served to make her more cautious, only more grateful to Reg for his part in their journey. Now he will have his own moments to reflect on Rico that mirrors this, but we'll address that in just a sec. The point is that Rico is not deterred. She is physically much weaker and fragile than Reg, yet mentally she is much more resilient. When she is injured and even hallucinating, she nevertheless has the wherewithal to guide Reg through what he needs to do to save her life, including breaking her arm to make it easier to sever. Even though she will bear the brunt of the decisions they make after the orb piercer poisons her, she is much quicker to make up her mind in the heat of the moment. She is a tough cookie. She does show signs of shock, yes, but she is not nearly as blindsided by the unexpected as Reg continues to be. So speaking of Reg, he continues to be blindsided by the unexpected. Honestly, whenever he is just acting from instinct, he seems to be fine. 
That's been true at several different points in the series. Yet if he has time to weigh the pros and cons, to waffle and hesitate, well, it seems to go poorly as often as not. He is physically superior to Rico in nearly every way, but is just not her equal when under the gun. This is a nice bit of complexity, really, because outside of crisis situations, he is the more rational actor, far more likely to exercise caution, to consider complexities, to be mindful of unknown dangers or threats. Rico is much more likely to get them into trouble. Now, if the situation can be solved with physicality, then Reg is probably going to get them out of it. But if it can't be, if it requires some fast decision-making, then Reg is out of his element, and the normally reckless Rico becomes the ace in the hole. I mentioned earlier in the series the way that Ozen and Maruk seemed at times like two halves of one character, that each seemed to possess very opposite qualities to the other. There are a lot of character traits between Reg and Rico that operate on a similar dynamic, and their mental state under pressure versus when idle is one of them. Another is how they respond to the notion of being separated. Last episode, when Rico was hallucinating, she was basically handed everything she wanted, all goals completed, except that Reg couldn't come back with her. The thought of leaving him behind snaps her out of the hallucination and gives her a burst of energy to push through the last few steps to level ground. She becomes more mentally tough in that situation. Compare that to Reg in this episode. Rico's survival appears to depend on him being able to cut off her arm to stop the poison spreading. Yet in the moment, he struggles through every step, hands shaking, vision blurring, mind racing. When he thinks she has died, he collapses emotionally, sobbing over her. I realize this was very traumatic, all right? I'm not trying to disparage Reg here, but it's such a different reaction than Rico's. Reg mentally buckles under duress, and only seems to be able to function if someone else is clear-headed in the moment. Rico has largely served this role for him. She might think of herself as dependent on Reg in a way, like last time when she thinks about how she was being protected by him all along, but he appears to be just as dependent on her for decision-making. When Nanachi shows up during his breakdown and can give him clear instructions, he largely snaps out of it, and can enthusiastically do what is necessary to try to save Rico. The fact that Reg is more useful in Crisis if someone else is doing the thinking honestly makes him seem like a tool. I've spoken before about how Reg doesn't appear to think of himself as anything except a normal person. He is frequently more human-like and vulnerable than Rico, who can be very detached and matter-of-fact in some situations. There are moments when you have to remind yourself which one of them is the robot. And yet, there is an instability to him when it comes to dealing with emotions, almost like someone who is new to the whole experience. Outside of stressful or tense moments, his thinking is even keeled and logical and focused. We frequently listened in on his ruminating, as he does early on in this episode when imagining what Rico must be feeling now that they're in the belly of the netherworld. But as soon as you add emotional turmoil to the situation, all that careful mental processing starts to fall apart. We know by this point that Rico has a lot of personality traits in common with her mother, most especially her reckless curiosity. The way that Rico and Reg offset and support each other makes me wonder if perhaps Rico's father, Torka, might have shared a lot of traits in common with Reg. Reg's origin is still a pretty big mystery, but if he and Liza have a history like I suspect, I won't be shocked to find out that he and Torka have a lot of overlap. So then, let us finally talk about our starting characterization for Nanachi. There's not a lot to go on just yet, but we can extract a few things. One is that she seems to have the same all-business mindset that is widespread among cave raiders. She is really nonplussed about Rico's injury, 
with no sense of alarm or urgency in the directions that she gives. While she does help them when she could easily have ignored their plight, she almost seems to do it just so she doesn't have to listen to Reg sobbing. If her collection of whistles is anything to go by, she has seen her fair share of dead cave raiders. Rico perishing here is probably no big event. We should consider it noteworthy that she offers to help at all. It's also noteworthy because she doesn't seem to be very comfortable with them. She is alarmed when Reg invades her personal space, even asking him to back up. It may not be significant, but she doesn't touch either of them. That is, rather than aid Rico directly, she gives Reg instructions, even though this is undoubtedly a much slower way to try and save Rico in what is a very time-sensitive scenario. When she decides they need to move Rico back to her place, she doesn't help Reg carry her. And yet, if she was actually hostile to them or wanted to avoid them, then the last thing she would do is invite them back to her home. It's possible her behavior comes from a lack of social experience rather than any kind of hostility. The only other things to go on is that she is a hollow. We don't know what that implies yet, but we do have a bit from Liza's notes. When she is describing the thing in her notes that either is or is like Reg, she says that it didn't give off the impression of being a hollow, so perhaps it actually is a person. While this doesn't tell us much, it suggests that cave raiders don't think of hollows as the same thing as a person, whatever that means. When that note showed up, I made the comment that hollow is rarely a description used for something good. Something about Nanachi and her kind has earned them this term, but from what we can see so far, she seems a lot like a person to me. So in world building, we have our usual additions to our flora and fauna. The things which earn this lair its Goblet of Giants nickname are a pair of symbiotic plants or fungi or something, with the actual cups of the goblets being called flat creepers. Evidently, these are prey trapping mechanisms, which sounds a bit like carnivorous plants. The water is hot and the air humid. Considering how far down they are, one wonders if the heat comes from the plants themselves. One other bit of interesting lore is that the prey trapping mechanisms wither up every 2,000 years. Maybe that's irrelevant, but I have a few thoughts on it in speculation, so we'll talk about it then. We learned that the spiky things we saw on the sides of the Great Fault are the egg stage of these squid things in the water. While this just reminds us how alien the fauna is, the real information for perspective is that these things are unnamed, just like 90% of the creatures in the abyss. I guess we see now why Liza was naming things left and right in her notes. This again just impresses on us how uncharted and little understood the Abyss is, and how increasingly likely it is that Reg and Rico will come up against things that are completely unknown. The main feature for new creatures, of course, is the Orbed Piercer. Its actions and Rico's commentary together tell us that this thing is relatively intelligent or intuitive, and that this kind of uncanny understanding becomes increasingly common as you get lower. I'd wondered last time if the Crimson Splitjaw might have a type of intelligence, that perhaps it recognized Reg's beam and came seeking revenge. Apparently that was not a one-off, and we can expect more from the Abyssal Dizenizens than just dangerous beasts. From a purely design standpoint, I appreciate the way a lot of these creatures have no discernible eyes and do not make expressions that we easily understand. It adds one more layer to their inscrutable nature and makes the Abyss that much more unknowable. There is also a certain psychological stress in facing an enemy that is unreadable that ramps up the whole tension of their encounter. So, we also have a couple of world-building details surrounding the Curse of the Abyss. The first is that we got to see the fourth layer's curse in action. I said last time that I thought we would eventually have a payoff for a character choosing to suffer the curse's effects. 
but I didn't think that Rico carrying Reg up that little incline was that payoff. Well, this episode seems to be it. If I'm interpreting what they say here correctly, then subjecting herself to the curse might actually be what will save Rico from death. Reg says that the curse appeared to expel the poison from her body before it started expelling her blood. I don't know if this is just creative problem solving, or if the curse actually intentionally counteracts the dangers of this level, or if it's just coincidence. Regardless, the show has given us a reason to hope that Rico's poisoning will not claim her life. The other detail about the curse is Nanachi's statements about the curse not being present right now. Her comments about Reg not being able to see it also suggest that, well, that the curse is something that can be seen. I'd wondered before about whether creatures in the abyss are immune to the curse or not. Rico scaled the incline last time out of a belief that it would let her escape from the Neritantans thanks to the curse. Yet we have a variety of flying creatures who could only exist if they can ascend and descend at will. Our Crimson Splitjaw friends certainly went all the way up to the surface from three levels down. So is it possible that the creatures aren't immune to the curse, but rather can actually see where it is or isn't, and therefore avoid it? We know both from the information about the weaker curse near the Seeker camp, and Nanachi's comments this time, that the curse is not uniform in strength. Is it perhaps fixed, or at least slow moving enough to be skipped entirely so long as you can perceive it? Well, I'll have more thoughts on that in speculation. Let's go on to theme. So in theme today, we will start with the gravity of the unknown. We have, well, both in play, gravity and the unknown. We really get the sense of a point of no return from this episode, that the situation for our duo is too far gone for them to have second thoughts. As I already discussed, Rico's injury probably makes it impossible to return in the short term, and depending on the permanent results, they might have no choice but to be forced lower. The gravitational pull of the abyss has added yet another tool to its arsenal. We also have a renewed emphasis on how unknown and unknowable the abyss is, and this quality is only increasing as they descend. I mentioned already the comments about how few of the species are named, as well as how the limited expressions of abyssal creatures makes them fundamentally inscrutable to our characters. This episode also makes clear how dangerous the unknown can be. Rico had plenty of textbook knowledge about the Orb Piercer, but in practice they did not know enough to save themselves from its attack or from its removal of the Blaze Reap from the fight. On the flip side, their salvation comes from the unknown as well. Everything about Nanachi and her intervention was unexpected and unplanned for. Maybe Rico will turn out to know something about Hollows, but this was aid that came unlooked for. It was never part of the equation for their survival as they understood it. It may be that this is not the last time something that is unknown to them may appear to help balance the scales. Threats are not the only mysteries awaiting us as we dive deeper. There is also a little bit with ends versus means when it comes to dealing with Rico's poisoning. Mostly this is reflected in Reg and Rico's different responses in the heat of the moment. Rico is the one who does not blanch at the means necessary to save her. Only the ends, her own survival, matter to her. She is the one insistent about cutting off her hand and breaking her arm, despite the fact that she will bear the pain and disfigurement of this decision. In certain situations, the ends are ascendant over the means for her. Reg, of course, struggles with the predicament. He obviously wants Rico to survive, and doesn't hesitate at all to do everything that Nanachi says, but the extreme things Rico first asks him to do are not so easy for him to face. The end goal of saving Rico is not enough to overpower his fear or his empathy for her pain. 
It's really just another example of how not robotic he really is. Finally, in World of Children, they know some things about basic first aid and are not completely in over their heads like we might expect of children. Reg knows to restrict her blood flow with a tourniquet when she is first pierced, and Rico knows that her hand has to come off for her own survival. However, Reg does not seem to know about CPR and would have been helpless without Nanachi. There are gaps in their knowledge, basically, but they don't know what those gaps are. The Abyss is unknowable enough without the extra difficulty of being children with limited life experience. It will be interesting to see whether Nanachi is a type of child as well. Meeting her might not be a solution to this thematic pressure and the way it has framed our story. So in What to Watch For, there are a few obvious things. We'll find out Rico's situation next time, I'm sure. I don't think the question is whether or not she survives. Rather, the question will be what type of impact this development has on her as a person and on the status of their journey. We'll see exactly how strong her mental fortitude is, as well as whether Reg will change his own bearing because of her reaction. We'll also obviously learn more about Nanachi, both about her personally and probably about Hollows in general. I'm interested to see if we learn about Hollows from Nanachi sharing information, or if we learn it from Riko when she comes too. I feel like there's a good chance they have different opinions on the matter, so it'll be curious to see what Riko's impression of Nanachi is, especially if she doesn't learn about her status as a Hollow right away. The only clue I can think of that's possibly related is from Shiggy's information about curses way back in episode 2. He talks about how from the sixth layer and beyond, there is a potential for the loss of your humanity and even death. It's unclear what loss of your humanity means, but the illustration in the book shows a cave raider transforming into something else, with large ears and some kind of growth on his head. We'll see, I guess. We'll want to watch for more clues about this idea of the curse being something you can see or actively avoid. That has some really far-reaching potential for how the story can develop from here on. We might figure it out before our characters actually put it together. I'm also curious to see if we'll find out if the presence that Reg felt earlier in the episode was Nanachi, or the Orb Piercer, or maybe even something else entirely. That may only have been put there to increase our tension early on, but it was a decent amount of screen time if it was otherwise meaningless. So finally, speculation. I was so worried with the huge delay that I would have been spoiled somewhere along the way. I've avoided anime communities all this time, which probably does my channel no favors, and yet it could be all for naught if I accidentally stumbled on a revealing bit of information, or a seemingly innocent reference in some unrelated corner of the internet. Somehow I have survived. To preserve this, I will still be recusing myself from the comment section on these videos, but I'm still very grateful that no one has spoiled things in an unrelated video. Now then, let's speculate. The first thing I want to talk about is the possible fate of Rico's lost items. We just lost Blaze Reap, and I honestly don't know what will happen to it. Since Ozen suggested that it might fail soon, I think they will recover it somehow, only for it to fail at some future moment. If it was going to disappear from the story at this point, I don't think there would have been any need to mention its failure rate, or imply that it was near the end of its usable lifespan. The remaining two lost things are the Star Compass and Rico's Notebook. Since we saw the Star Compass float downriver before, and since we are now in a watery area, it seems like a logical place to run into it again. I supposed way back when it happened that someone in the Abyss would find it, and that this person possessing it might add some new conflict or complication. 
I also thought it possible that this hypothetical person might have more information about the compass itself. Reg's examination way back when led him to believe that there was some incomprehensible principle at work. I suggested that the person who ends up with it might be able to shed light on that principle. Well, since we can see that Nanachi collects cave raider equipment and lives in this watery area, it seems a fair bet that she might have stumbled across the star compass and would have taken it with her when she did. Now, I don't know if she will have more information about it or not, uh, but I'll come back to that idea in a moment. The last missing thing is Rico's notebook. When this first happened, I thought it might create a conflict where they lost critical information about how to survive in the abyss. It turns out that Rico mostly has that information memorized, and her work in the notebook was actually out of hope of it contributing to her fame and notoriety one day. That is, she was taking notes in the same way that her mother did, and was hoping that they would be poured over by the surface one day, adding to her legacy. Thus, I changed my mind about the nature of that conflict. I said that instead, the conflict is that the notebook contains information about Reg's true nature. They are assuming that he burned it up with an incinerator, but if he didn't, then it means there is a record of exactly what he is lying around for anyone to find. Well, I am guessing that this has happened. What's more, the person who found it, or at least has it now, is the Bondarudo White Whistle, who we have reason to believe is still below them in the abyss. Ozen's information about him as a scoundrel that they should watch out for suggests pretty strongly that he will enter our story. Since we are already set up to expect bad behavior from him, it doesn't seem like a stretch to think that he will know that Reg is a supreme treasure of the netherworld. Combine his characterization with this fact, and Bondaruda pursuing them in an attempt to take Reg back to the surface as a prize seems like a pretty logical progression. Now that I think Nanachi will have the star compass, I'm guessing he's the one that has the notebook. Let's see. Um, I speculate that Rico will recover, which I think I already implied, but I am guessing that she will be permanently affected. Now that we've seen people using body modification relics like Ozen, there seems a chance for her to do something to her hand or body as a result of what has happened here. I don't know if that is a realistic avenue to pursue, but altering her model in the way they did this episode was not something I would have believed was on the table initially. Here's a situation where the unknown aspects of the abyss aren't just affecting our characters, they're affecting my ability to guess what might happen. Now, there is something I want to guess about Rico's body that I do feel will pan out. As mentioned, Nanachi's comments about Reg not being able to see the curse suggests that something about the curse can be detected. I supposed up in world building that it's possible the creatures in the abyss are not immune to the curse, but might actually be able to see it and avoid it. This brings me back to something I said a few episodes ago. I pointed out that our attention was being drawn to Rico's glasses, and how they are not for her vision, but for correcting something that happened to her eyes as a result of her birth circumstances. I thought this meant there might come a time when we learn that her eyes work differently, and the glasses are how they are covering this up until the time comes. Well, with Nanachi's information about the curse, or something like it able to be seen, I feel that this might be the thing it turns out that Rico's different eyes are good for. That she can detect variants in the curse, or see it outright, or even see what it actually really is. Since she was born in the Abyss, she might effectively be a creature of the Abyss. We know being born down here is what causes her eyes to be the way they are in the first place. So, I think we have been set up to have another situation arise where Rico's glasses are knocked from her face. This time, though, she will be able to see the curse. 
It'll be quite the surprise, but I can just imagine it happening at a critical moment that lets them escape danger or proceed further despite seeming to be stuck at first. It may even be that this is what sheds light on what the curse actually is. Speaking of subtle world-building details, Rico spoke at the beginning about the nature of the flat creepers, whose growth creates this goblet of giants environment. She mentioned that they wither up every 2,000 years, a detail I said we would return to. Now, leaving aside how they would even know something like that, this bit of data sticks out in my mind. I realize now that the dates we have been given for various parts of the abyss are all in 2,000 year increments. Like, these skeletons they find in prayer poses in the upper levels have apparently been there for 2,000 years. The wind-riding windmills they pass have been there for 4,000 years, and now these creepers wither every 2,000 years. Doesn't it seem like something happens in the abyss every 2,000 years, causing this pattern of dates? I bring it up because the one bit of dating that doesn't conform to this was in the first episode's end narration, where we learned that the abyss was discovered 1,900 years ago. In other words, if something happens every 2,000 years, no one on the surface world would know about it. The skeletons are from the century before its discovery. Indeed, it suggests that if something does happen at 2,000 year increments, it was the last one of these that caused the abyss to be discoverable at all. And what's more, the abyss should be getting pretty close to the next 2,000 year cycle ending or beginning. I have no idea what that suggests, but it might be that something major or even cataclysmic is barreling toward our characters and they don't even know it. Perhaps this is what causes the timing of Liza going AWOL. Perhaps it's related to why Rig came to the surface. I really don't know, and I realize that is not a lot to go on. But why give us such specific dates, like differentiating between 1900 and 2000 years, if it was never going to matter? Anyway, one last speculation. I suspect that Rig will be gun-shy about continuing their mission. Maybe Rico too, but she has been constantly unfazed. I still can't believe she's had no crisis about her birth circumstance. Ascending has its problems, and barring some major change, I think they are either stuck here or forced to go down. But I can understand having some strong resistance to continuing their descent after the events of this episode. Therefore, I speculate that Nanachi will have some information that compels them onward. Either she has come across Liza, or has some information about someone who could be Liza, or something about the lower levels that gives them some hope or urgency. Maybe she does have the star compass and knows something about where it points. We're still assuming thanks to the ending credits that Nanachi is going to go with them for a time, or may otherwise figure into the story in a bigger way than just saving Rico. However, like I said last time, having her show up at such a moment associates her with the Act 2 break. Now, Rico nearly dying here is not necessarily the break, but if her injury changes the stakes, context, or course of the story, then it may be the break in retrospect. Associating Nanachi with the Act 2 break makes it more likely that she will eventually be antagonistic, or at least is not solely a boon. They don't have to obey that convention or anything, but it's worth noting that while a lot of things set Nanachi up to be friendly and a new companion and all that, the point of the story in which she is being introduced may mean that all that is a ruse, that they are once again setting us up to be surprised by subverting our expectations. So, I am guessing that something Nanachi knows, or has, will alter the normal course of the story, and that she is potentially not what she seems. This might be good or bad, but if we are where I think we are in the story, then she is not some inconsequential addition. 
Something about her, or about what she will do, is going to change what we understand about our series. Alright, that is it. Sorry for the long break, those of you who have waited all this time. If it makes you feel better, I've had to suffer with the cliffhanger of this episode for nearly seven months. As soon as this video starts to render, you better believe I'm going to be taking in episode 11. So, come back soon, and I'll be talking about that one. Until then. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.